The radically dysfunctional American healthcare system programs us to get sick, get on long-term prescriptions, and get some expensive body scans until we're out of money and benefits. Our healthcare system is in shambles after the insurance company capture of independent hospitals and the mismanagement of the COVID pandemic. More and more people are realizing that there is no one coming to save us after a life of processed food, alcohol, stress, and poor sleep. There is no greater wealth than keeping your health or improving your health if you are already at a deficit. The vast majority of people find their way to cannabis medicine after Western medicine has failed them. For the 10 years I've been helping patients, nearly everyone who has approached me for direction in cannabis use has already been spent dry by the healthcare system and given little to show for it. Cannabis medicine is still considered a last resort for most folks. I propose that we start looking more at cannabis as a preventative, a potent source of stability, both physically and emotionally. For true longevity, cannabis can take some time to bear fruits, but the results from early and daily use of cannabis offers rewards that are often described as miraculous by traditional doctors. Pairing daily cannabinoids with whole foods and less alcohol could possibly be today's fountain of youth. If you want to learn about cannabis health, cultivation, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos, too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter, so go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter this week and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Los. My guest today is neuroscientist and cannabinoid researcher Hunter Land, Ph.D., Hunter Land is the Vice President of Research and Development at Biopharmaceutical Research Company, one of the few DEA Schedule I FDA-compliant cannabinoid research and development companies. He has 20 years of R&D expertise across 25 different indications, as well as 12 years of cannabinoid-focused research. As an expert in the field of cannabinoid science, he has developed a pipeline of discovery work on over 20 novel cannabinoids and terpenes. Previously, Dr. Land acted as the Senior Scientific Director, Director of Cannabinoid Research, and Scientific Spokesperson at Canopy Growth. Most notably, though, he was GW Pharma's first full-time R&D employee in the United States, where he played a critical role in the development of Epidiolex and Sativex, and co-authored multiple protocols for the treatment of refractory epilepsy, multiple sclerosis, and pain. Dr. Land has presented at over 50 scientific conferences, is a named inventor on nine patent applications, and has over 20 publications. Hunter serves as guest lecturer at the University of Wisconsin and the University of Colorado Skagg School of Pharmacy and holds other important positions, including Chief Scientific Officer for the National Hockey League Alumni, Scientific Board Member of the Veterinary Cannabis Society, and Member of the Advisory Board for the Council of Federal Cannabis Regulation. Special thanks to the folks at Medicinal Genomics who shared Hunter's presentation on longevity at CanMed 2023 this year on YouTube. CanMed deserves a lot of credit for making these presentations public and not gatekeeping them. You can find links to Hunter's and all the other CanMed presentations on the Shaping Fire website page for this episode. 
During the first set today, we will discuss what longevity is in practice, the mechanics of aging at the metabolic level, how increasing cellular energetics improves your health span, and how the endocannabinoid system plays a significant role in all of this. The chunky second set is devoted to discussing individual cannabinoids, their longevity benefits on particular health systems, functional cannabinoid ratios, and how to go about determining an individualized dosing strategy to meet your goals, including a vibrant discussion of using whole plant resin versus cannabinoid isolate. And during the third short set, we will focus specifically on a few cautions to consider when taking cannabinoids to extend your functional life. Welcome to Shaping Fire, Hunter. Uh, thanks so much for having me. So, you know, getting right into it, um, one of the things I like about your presentations is you make this very delicate delineation about lifespan and health span, because so often people just think about how long will I live? Um, but, but as I get older, I realize that there's a lot of difference in quality of life um, if I get older and sicker. So will you tease those apart for us so that um, you kind of set us up for the direction we're headed in today? Of course. Um, I think it's a critical distinction. Uh, living a really long life but not a robust life uh, filled of activity um, is certainly a shortcoming, right? So we don't want uh, to have the situation where we can live you know, well over 100 years, but our last 30 years, uh, we're unable to do the things, you know, the normal uh, activities of daily living that we enjoy uh, that goes to quality of life. So a lot of us researchers, uh, we don't just look at how long something could keep you alive. Uh, we look at the quality of life there in the middle. Um, and interesting enough, that kind of middle set of health span measures, mainly around activity level, seems to feed quite well into lifespan generally. So those who are maintain health and health span measures in the middle of life often uh, as an extension of that, extend lifespan uh, quite significantly. Um, and then those who extend lifespan um, often uh, don't have this prolonged, uh, unfortunate um, lack of activity at the, the terminal, terminal years of their life. So that definitely gives us the idea that, you know, uh, in one case, in one way, it might be better to live a higher quality, shorter life than a longer life that's lower quality. Because if you're if you're really getting sicker the last twenty years, uh, it's like in increasingly being in a prison and yet you're still alive. Exactly. You know, I think the the goal ultimately would be both, and I think we can achieve both with some level of intervention. Uh, and we've seen, you know, an extensive change in lifespan. Um, if you go back maybe 100, 150 years, you know, average life expectancy was about 35 years. Uh, you know, it was riddled with problems around giving birth, uh, infections, you know, lack of surgery. And now we have those things and we've been able to extend life. But unfortunately, the health span uh, remains to be problematic in that kind of those middle years of life and ultimately uh, impact age-related disease. So I don't think that we need to convince very many people that living a long and healthy life is the goal. So that's probably going to be our easiest thing to you know try to convince people of today. So so let, sure. let's move right on to the 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 the, the part of that the endocannabinoid. Um, system can play in this you know 
Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with how I normally explain the endocannabinoid system just because patients dig it. Um, uh, but, but then I'm going to ask you to give us like a, you know, a more elaborate scientific explanation. But um, to people who have never come across the endocannabinoid system before, I always say that it's, it's very similar to being a second grade teacher in the room. You know, you've got, you've got the teacher in the room and you've got all these students. And when the teacher's in the room, all the kids are pretty much doing what they're supposed to be doing. But then if the teacher gets called out of the room, the kids might be good for a few minutes, but eventually one kid cracks up and then another kid cracks up and then like all the kids are cracking up. And then, and then eventually the teacher comes back in the room and has to settle everybody back down. And our endocannabinoid system is in the same way. Like, you know, if, if, if the endocannabinoid system gets weakened, eventually one of the systems that it moderates will go bad and then another one will and another one. And it may be different systems um, that are falling out of balance for different people first, but, um, you know, the, the chaos increases as they run into each other. So, you know, you know, at, at that, that, that ex- explanation would certainly never fly at one of your scientific conferences. Um, so I, I would appreciate it if you would explain in a more scientific way um, how the endocannabinoid system acts as the body's master regulator for all of these mission-critical systems. Oh, well, I think the analogy is, is really interesting and, and suitable. Uh, I like to think of it generally, the endocannabinoid system, as the rest, relax, restore system of the body. I think that was something that uh, Ethan Russo, uh, one of my mentors, uh, refers to it as. And I think it's a good representation of, of how that system works. If you look at the brain, uh, the cannabinoid 1 receptors, these are receptors that THC uh, is an agonist or activates these uh, receptors, as well as your own body's cannabinoids uh, or endogenous cannabinoids. And um, that's essentially how the system functions is by either local activation, uh, your own body's endocannabinoid system, or by external cannabinoids. And, and THC, I think, is, is one of the, the best examples of, of what we would call a partial agonist at CB1. And the way, an easy way to think of this, again, not trying to go in too much detail, but your brain... It has neurotransmitters that, that signal uh, for effects. And these things can be certain neurotransmitters may act like stimulants. So think caffeine and other neurotransmitters may act like um, benzodiazepines. So think Xanax. Um, and these are signaling pathways. But if you get too much release of uh, the stimulant component, so that's glutamate or the benzodiazepine, the, the Xanax-like component, which would be GABA, um, things can go awry because we, we, we don't want these systems to be out of control, just like your, your second graders in the classroom. And, and the, the second grade teacher, so to speak, uh, would be your, your endocannabinoid system, which actually tells these neurotransmitters to um, stop, to, to settle down, to calm down, so not release as much of this neurotransmitter, uh, essentially like a reset switch for those systems. Um, the interesting component is this happens on a very localized level, so you're not reprimanding the whole classroom. Your body doesn't you know, punish all the kids if only two of them were bad. It only focuses on those two bad children or the two, uh, the small section of neurotransmission that's gone awry. 
the important difference here is when you take a exogenous cannabinoid, so like THC, it can downregulate all of that system. So the stimulation and the inhibitory or the, the Xanax-like effect, which can be problematic. If you, if you use too much, uh, then that's where you get massive anxiety and paranoia. So it's a very um, particular system. Um, that can be regulated well on its own and in many cases may need to be regulated or can people can benefit from regulation uh, using something like THC. So we're not going to dwell too much on the mechanics, but I do have a couple of a couple other questions to go down this path before before we switch. Um, you know, Often we will talk about uh, certain cannabinoids uh, being an, um, an agonist or an antagonist. Um, and my understanding is an agonist essentially is turning on something or an antagonist is turning off something. And often, you know, lay people will talk about, um, you know, this or that cannabinoid turning on or off a receptor um, causing a particular effect or another. Um, is it, is it really like, uh, that black and white zero and one do, do, do these antagonists and antagonists really just flip a switch and it's either a or B or is it more analog where there's a range of, of how much it is being at agonized or antagonized? Yeah, absolutely. There's a tremendous range and, and, you know, we could probably do a show on just that component or just that question, which, uh, I think we'll, we'll skip some of those details, but the, to the degree to which you stimulate or agonize a receptor or block it, uh, can be very powerful or it can be more gentle, right? So THC is not a very potent agonist. It doesn't, it's not like a sledgehammer for your, your CB1 receptor. There are some synthetic, uh, cannabinoids like spice and K2 that are, extremely uh, inebriating and very potent um, and very dangerous and can cause a lot of side effects. Uh, there's also antagonists, so at, at, at lower doses, THCV, so similar to THC but with two less carbons on the tail, um, it can be an antagonist, so it can actually block uh, your endocannabinoids and uh, may lead to a very different effect. Uh, there was a, a drug called Romanabant that was uh, designed to be an antagonist. And unfortunately, it's something we call inverse agonist. So it's not like THC, I think is the, the important point. And, and what happened with that particular drug is it caused increased uh, suicidal ideation. So people were depressed. Some people were depressed and uh, some people had suicidal thoughts. They also lost weight and seemed to help regulate blood sugar and a, a couple other aspects. So um, your point of how strong something is at either blocking a receptor or stimulating a receptor, especially as it relates to, to medicine and, and health outcomes, uh, is of critical importance. So circling this um, mechanics conversation back to this idea of longevity and um you know, that, that bigger holistic picture, um, you know, 
when we think about the endocannabinoid system and its ability to to you know uh, uh, turn on and off different systems to bring them into balance, things that are running hot, it can have it settle down, or if something is too sluggish, it can suddenly be stimulated by the endocannabinoid system. Most of us, um, you know, folks who are cannabis enthusiasts but are not researchers, um, you know, we we throw around the ideas of the CB1 and CB2 receptor, you know, pretty pretty liberally. Even if, if not necessarily scientifically accurate, just so that we can, un, you know, generally understand um, how to dose ourselves one way or another, and mm-hmm. um, and and I, and I know that um, you know CBD doesn't really act upon those receptors, and yet we still consider it part of the endocannabinoid system, which which clearly suggests that the endocannabinoid system is made up of more than just these. Uh, neurotransmitters and and these two receptors. Now, now I know it, again it would be an entire show to ask you to review all of the parts of the endocannabinoid system, but what I'm what I'm looking for is is um, uh, for you to just give us a, a, a quick uh, survey of of who makes up the endocannabinoid system, like what parts, because in in a, you know in in a little bit in the show we're going to be talking about how we're working with the endocannabinoid system, and I, I want to make sure that people understand the reach. Sure. Well, the endocannabinoid system is is heavily uh, integrated with so many other systems in your body. It it can couple or affect upstream, downstream things like serotonin, which is associated with depression, uh, dopamine, which I think we're all well versed in, and what dopamine uh, actions of do- dopamine are, um, but also critical roles in inflammation and mood, uh, sleep. So you know it's it's heavily integrated. So I I personally like to think of the endocannabinoid system in a classical case. So just CB1 and CB2 in the endogenous ligand, so the cannabinoids that your body makes, and then the transporters, um, whether that's um, because you have to get these from point A to point B. And they're all targets for potential uh, making of medicines and, and maybe plant molecules modulating these systems. Once you go outside of that, then you start calling a lot of different things the endocannabinoid system. So, for instance, uh, TRIP receptors, uh, TRP receptors, um, especially TRIP-V1, we know is activated by cannabinoids and sometimes desensitized. That's the same receptor for um, the spicy taste. Right, and that's actually an ion channel. So that's just an example of another system altogether that cannabinoids can function at, but isn't necessarily a um, what I would consider the classical endocannabinoid system. Um, but um, to your point, there are tons of targets, especially for CBD. We know there are about sixty-eight different targets, meaning places where CBD may work or function in the body. And almost all of those are outside of the endocannabinoid system. And the same can be said for probably at least a hundred of the other uh, phytocannabinoids found in cannabis, that their principal role is probably not CB1 or CB2. So, so in a way of summary, um, will you make the case real, for me real quick? Uh, make the case that for, for somebody wanting um, to you know, increase their health span, why working with the endocannabinoid system is a great place for you to be working? 
Well, I think, you know, the endocannabinoid system is, as I mentioned, the rest, relax, restore system of the body. It's importance around inflammation and the immune system is critical. And when we think about um, age-related diseases, a lot of these are mediated by our body's inflammatory response, uh, autoimmune response, and and things that have gone awry. So um, if your body's able to keep these uh, components in check, then maybe you do have better health span and, and, and lifespan measures uh, by just keeping everything in this nice balance of where it should be in homeostasis uh, and not uh, outside of that. I think that's a, certainly a, a, a has strong potential um, for extending life and, and activity. And, and secondly, I think there's a big role for cannabinoids and endocannabinoids around mitochondrial health. Um, and mitochondria, uh, if you remember back to grade school, are the powerhouse of the cells. So as these things go into decline, um, you know, you have uh, problems with cellular energetics, which if you don't have energy uh, for your engine of your cell, then kind of everything starts to go awry. When, when people talk about, um, you know, can, cannabis medicine and all the things that it can help, um, People new to cannabis medicine will also have often have this reaction that, um, oh, you think cannabis is a panacea? It, it, you know, it's it can just cure everything. That's ridiculous. Nothing can cure that much. And and what I tell them is, it really only helps one thing. It it helps balance the endocannabinoid system. And the, and and the issue is that all of your body's systems play into the endocannabinoid system. So really, the cannabis plant really has one job, which is to keep the endocannabinoid system in balance. And, and in my head, I always think of it as, you know, the, endo, the only thing that you can do other than the endocannabinoid system that can have such far-reaching effects to heal and restore the human body is eating a whole foods diet, because that too reaches every part of your body. Um, how does that set for you? Well, I, I think it's an interesting point. Um, I, first thing I would like to say is cannabis is not cannabis is not cannabis, right? Because we know that there are, I think last time I checked, about 545 potentially active compounds that can be found in cannabis. And we estimate right now there may be up to 150 different phytocannabinoids. And they're all very unique, right? So uh, when we use cannabis as just a plant, um, it is a very unique plant because of the compounds it produces. These are things like terpenes and terpenoids and flavonoids and uh, obviously cannabinoids, as well as a lot of components that we're not even uh, really uh, well versed in as of yet. The science hasn't really directed us to examine all these components. And, and with that being said, the complexity is which of these components works where, well where and how does that affect disease? So to your point, if we're talking THC um, and some of the other cannabinoids, uh, then, then you know, endocannabinoid system may be critical. Um, but if you look at something like CBD, I would, I would make an argument for uh, the principal um, areas of action are not um, directly related, maybe upstream or downstream, but not directly related to the endocannabinoid system. 
Mm. So again, another level of complexity um, to a very, very complex situation. Um, I agree with your statement about food. I have a a deep interest in nutrition. Um, I would also add um, exercise and potentially fasting um, to that as having a systemic uh, beneficial effect to to treat uh, multiple diseases. Um, I've heard you talk before about, um, you know, the, the aging process as part of this overall topic of, of living a longer, healthier life. And, um, and people often think, talk about like the body's clock and, and how you can turn back the clock or stop the clock or, you know, different ways that, that people use that turn of phrase. And, um, uh, I'm curious at a, at a, I guess a biomechanical level, what does the, the, the body's clock, um, what, what, what is that mechanism? You know, in passing, I've heard people say, oh, folate is the body's clock. But, like, I don't actually know what that means. Oh, man, this is a I think there's a lot of components to dive into here. Um, when you talk about body's clock, a lot of this has to do with um, there are compounds within cells called sirtuins. And they regulate something called epigenetics. Um, And you can think of this, uh, the genetics is kind of the recipe. And the epigenetics um, can either cover portions of the recipe or uncover them for production of critical components um, uh, for health span and lifespan. Um, So your body basically looks at the recipe and makes what it needs. Over time, um, those recipes get damaged. And um, to the degree that cannabinoids play a role interacting with these sirtuins and helping regulate uh, these genes isn't incredibly clear. But I think when people, largely when people talk about their body's clock, uh, they're, they're thinking about how this information gets damaged over time and then measuring links of things um, uh, called telomeres uh, where you can get a, a kind of a biological age. And, and they seem to map, uh, some of these compounds seem to map with biological age, which is very different than chronological age. So, um, so if I were to summarize that, like, you know, if I was talking to a friend or somebody, I, w- I would say that, you know, our, our, when we're young or when we're born, our body is born with a, um, a, a set of recipes to, to make various, um, you know, chemicals and parts that make us human. And, and as we get older, um, the, the recipe book um, starts to get uh, corrupted over time. And so the recipes don't get made right anymore and and therefore the functioning uh continues to degrade until you know the souffle flattens and we die um is 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 that is that one way to say what you're saying sure i think that's one way you you start out making chocolate chip cookies and and you know at the end uh (laughs) they don't look anything like chocolate chip cookies because you've got this disrupted uh, recipe, and I think that's that's one component. And the other component, um, you know, has to do with um, cellular energetics and and also um, the cleaning of, of the cell. So getting rid of the bad and coming in with the new, and and that also gets damaged over time. The uh, your body's ability to heal, which I think everybody can 
can agree that, you know, an 80 year old individual does not have the same ability to, to heal their injured knee as, you know, a 10 year old. Um, and that ability declines over time for, for multiple reasons. Um, and, and some of that is your own body's adaptation to, to cleansing the bad and, and bringing in the new. If as we age, um, our, the recipes are getting corrupted and, 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 and what we want is thriving cellular energetics um, so that we have a longer health span, what, what is it that is degrading these recipes that potent cellular energetics um, is able to undo or defend against? I think it's a, a great point. Uh, a lot of people are investigating this. I mean, there are some people that just have great genetics from the start. These centenarians, you know, that live over a hundred, a lot of them have smoked cigarettes their whole life and maybe drink too much, etc. But they were just, you know, blessed with, uh, you know, this genetic predisposition of just having this really robust uh, genetic system that takes care of their, their, uh, the health of their DNA and their cells. But for most of us, we don't have that. And the things that we can control are largely environmental. So that's what we put in our body, um, the amount of rest and sleep that we get, um, the uh, toxins that that may be around us, uh, and activity level. Uh, And I think those are, that pretty much sums up, um, you know, the outcomes of, of how well we can maintain these recipes and the cellular health um, as we age. You know, it's kind of ironic that, that even though, you know, the, the underlying kind of point of the discussion today is, is you know, growing and using uh, cannabis medicine as a, a supplement can increase your health and your, your health span. At the same time, um, it, it's not lost on me that we keep on coming back to the best thing that you can do for your health span is to uh, eat well, sleep well, and exercise. And, and except for maybe, you know, whole foods more or less, like those are all, those are free things, right? Those are things that don't cost money. And yet they're the hard thing to do. And so people are all like, you know, I, I still want to stay up too late. I would still like to eat like crap. I don't really want to exercise, but I would really like to buy this bottle of vitamins and just eat these and get away with living my crappy life. Right, right. It's much easier. Yeah. Right? And, and, and we see that, you know, with, with modern medicine, uh, uh, you know, for instance, some patients that are diabetic may be able to manage it um, with diet and exercise. Um, and, and I'm not a physician, so, you know, consult your physician before you do any of that. But it could in the early stages as potentially be managed with uh, diet and exercise, but it's much easier to take a pill or a shot or take a medication than to put all that effort into controlling something uh, more naturally. Right on. So um, with that said, we certainly recommend a whole foods diet, exercise, and, uh, and good sleep. But we also want to be able to um, you know, do the best we can. And so um, we're going to continue the conversation now and talk about... Um, 
you know, some cannabinoids and, and what their mechanics look like in the body um, uh, to support this, uh, this increasing health span that we want to get. Now, um, you know, yeah, there's, there's, you know, 545 compounds and, and 150 phytocannabinoids, and clearly we're not going to go through them all today. And, and it, you know, I don't really think we need to either because for, for most listeners, we're really only going to have access to, um, you know, CBD, THC, CBG, and then whole plant resins that will have a smattering of these other phytocannabinoids in it, which we may not even know about because they might not be testing for them in the COA. So, um, so we'll just, 100%. yeah, we'll, so let's just focus on these because this is what people really have access to. And so we might, and I don't want to, I want to keep this relevant to real people, you know? Sure, so, so, so since you've already started talking about CBD and the plethora of targets, I think you like said 68 or something, something like way bigger than, um, most people take for granted. Um, um, and I'm, I'm, I'm we're going to start with CBD and then I'm going to hit like all, you know, all of the next three, but, but let's start with CBD. Um, what is it that we are hoping that CBD does? You know, when people ask me, I just generally say we want the CBD supplement as an, um, to re- that we get from the plant to replace an endogenous cannabinoid that we're not making or that we're depleted in or we don't have enough of. So, so our, our, our body doesn't have enough. And so we take CBD to replace it and, and then it helps keep things in balance. How would you discuss it as a as a cannabinoid researcher? I would um, I would discuss it a little bit different because most of my work around CBD has been in uh, treating disease, and uh, primarily, you know, the the at least the initial work I've done with CBD was in epilepsy, specifically <laughs> a lot of refractory childhood epilepsies like Dravet and Lennox Gastaut, um, where these children had failed you know, 14 different modern medications and we're on three or four and still having hundreds of seizures a month. And we do see, uh, CBD is quite effective, generally reducing about 50% of seizures with some patients being seizure free. Um, and it doesn't work like these other anti epileptic drugs or these anti seizure drugs. That's, I think the, the really clear component, um, is that we know that it is safe and effective for seizures. Um, but these doses are much higher than what you would take CBD as a supplement. So in the clinical trials, you know, patients were taking, you know, between 500 and 1500, sometimes more milligrams of CBD a day. Now, would that be lower if it was a whole plant extract? Um, I think it would have to be lower because the whole plant extracts contain THC, would that be better? It's certainly possible um, that it would be better, but but again, uh, we would really need to do that research. THC is also an anticonvulsant. So as you and your listeners probably know, if you're getting a whole plant extract, the overwhelming majority of them still have some THC present, um, which, which may be a benefit to some patients with epilepsy. It could also be pro-convulsant to some patients, uh, and it may be of critical importance to areas like pain um, and, and maybe areas like anxiety. Now, as you go down in doses, there's been some evidence that CBD is a, is a 
pretty powerful anxiolytic. We've seen that for things like public speaking. Um, they haven't done any work with podcasting yet, but maybe that's a that's an option. We, <laughs> we do see that uh, the anxiety tends to go down um, in, in several studies, and that seems to be at, at lower doses. Um, if you bring that dose down further to, let's say, 25 milligrams, they're really hasn't been a lot of research to say, you know, what do these low doses do? And, um, and that's because, you know, it may not be doing much at low doses, or um, it may be that it takes a long time to see those effects. For example, if you eat a healthy diet or you take uh, certain uh, nutritional supplements, you may not see that immediately. It may be down the road where you see benefit. Um, and those are things that are very difficult to, to look at uh, and, and very expensive to look at uh, in a scientific setting. We often talk about psilocybin on this show, and that's the kind mm-hmm. of the idea, whole idea behind microdosing, right? Is that is that you just take a little bit every day, and so the materials are there, and it's the it's the constancy over time that uh, allows the for the neurogenesis and, and improvement in in the in the brain. Um, one of the things that always gets me about CBD, though, you know, where where I'm asking you about. <laughs> you know the function of CBD. So, as as somebody who's looking for longevity, knows, um, you know what the CBD is like doing for them. It's it it, it doesn't really discriminate, right? It kind of gets into everything, and so it, it it's, it's almost like all right. I can't tell you specifically what CBD is going to do for you and how soon, but I can tell you that. CBD does so much good for so many different systems that you should just take it and and just let it decide where it's going to work. Well, when you have multiple um, mechanisms, multiple ways of, of, of having some sort of benefit, um, you know, if, if there's one area that's not problematic, it may not modulate that particular system, which potentially could give benefit if there's another area where um, that needs modulation or activity. And to your point earlier that that I kind of glossed over, um, CBD is relevant to the endocannabinoid system. Uh, There's been a lot of uh, study about it being a negative allosteric modulator, meaning like it, it can reduce uh, the ability for things like THC to, to attach to the, that receptor. Um, there's been some other things like it boosts your endocannabinoids, your body's own cannabinoids. I think those are kind of difficult to really understand if that's really a mechanism. But one of the really interesting uh, studies that, that I think has just been published was in Fragile X, uh, which is a type of seizure disorder. And these patients have disruptive um, endocannabinoid systems, specifically endocannabinoid tone. And um, it appears that CBD was able to restore that. And it may be because you're not, uh, CBD may prevent the internalization. So uh, basically the disappearance of of these CB1 receptors. So think of a, a, you know, a a tree that gets sucked back down into the dirt, right? So when, when the tree is gone, then it doesn't matter, you know, what type of molecule you have to stick to that particular receptor, there's nothing there to activate. So it is possible that, that CBD may uh, prevent some of this internalization, which would be good for uh, the endocannabinoid system as a whole. 
So I'm, I'm sure that we can describe um, several different cannabinoids in that similar way where, where they can participate uh, in, in several different ways in several different systems. Um, but, but we do know that CBG, cannabigerol, actually does different things than CBD does. So, I, so next, like, would you make a delineation um, and explain to us what is different about CBG than CBD and, and how you have found it acting or, you know, what, what the state of the science is for CBG? Because even though, you know, most cannabis enthusiasts are relatively new to CBG, um, you know, researchers have been jumping on it as, you know, the exciting new novel cannabinoid for a few years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love CBG. I think it's a really interesting molecule to study. It, it is available, which some of these other minor cannabinoids are not available. And it is quite distinct from both THC and CBD and, and mechanism. Um, for your listeners, they probably know that you know CBGA, the acid form, is considered the, the mother of all cannabinoids. It, it, it is um, after CBG, your, the plant, the cannabis plant, produces uh, THCA or CBDA, um, which which we know very well, but it is a principal component in a lot of available cultivars of cannabis now, which makes it easy for us to, or at least easier for us to study. Um, and it's also not a Schedule One compound, so labs don't have to have all these certifications to examine it. So that's that's step one. It's not been available that long, so we don't know nearly as much about CBG um, as we do THC and and CBD. Um, Primarily, we know that they're different, and then um, we do know that there's some unique properties for for CBG around uh, immune system regulation and around, um, there's something called nucleotide receptors, and those are um, things that are activated on the nucleus of cells. So it may be very important for coding um, things that your body produces that are of benefit or preventing things from being coded that are problematic. Since the theme for the day is, um, is health span and longevity, will you speak a little bit to uh, CBG's activity on the immune system? Sure. Well, we do see downregulation in, in a lot of th- things that are potentially problematic like uh, tumor necrosis factor and interleukins, um, which can be kind of broadly destructive and are um, are common in a lot of disease states, uh, autoimmune-related disease states that result in pain and neurodegeneration, et cetera. Um, so, so we do know that it has activity there. Um, the interesting thing will be, be to learn, um, does that, in combination with other cannabinoids, does that have a additive or super-additive effect that can really uh, help um, treat some of these diseases and conditions? Um, for folks who haven't uh, come across that vocabulary before, I'd like you to briefly explain um, uh, additive and more specifically super additive because um, we continually make the case for people to consider finding um, either you know, whole plant or built cannabis medicines that, that have several of these cannabinoids. And this idea of, 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 of the, the sum being better, being um, more effective than the parts. I think people, I want people to be able to wrap their heads around that. Sure. I, and I love the subject. Um, I think a lot of people talk about the entourage effect. Um, 
it's a very interesting topic. And we do see, um, I like to think of the entourage effect as, as super additive, right? And, and what that would mean, so let, let's take a step back. So additive, I think of additive as very simply as one plus one equals two, right? So if you're taking, let's say, two medications um, and one of them reduces your pain by half or let's say, 20% and the other one by itself would reduce pain by 20%. If you take them together and you get a 40% reduction in pain, then that would be additive. One plus one equals two, which is benefit, right? Because you may not be able to, to take medication one at a higher dose because it may be toxic or maybe it just doesn't work beyond reducing 20%. Um, same thing with medication too. So you have this additive effect. But sometimes we see these synergies where we have two different medications and you they both reduce something by 20%, but you put them together and instead of a 40% reduction, you get an 80% reduction. And that's what I would call super additive effect. And the idea that um, with cannabinoids, you may be able to combine these or they may exist already in the plant to where by themselves they would do nothing or they would help somewhat but when combined they do a lot more and i think that's what the entourage effect um, is defining and um, it could be cannabinoids with other things that aren't cannabinoids as well like terpenes or flavonoids like canflavins um, we're not really sure uh, but i do think it's important to outline that um, cannabinoids uh, specifically, sometimes they seem to work well together um, and you get this additive or super additive effect and sometimes they don't. Um, and we've seen that in with CBD and THC and glaucoma where using them together actually prevents the benefits or the decrease in the, the pressure in the eye of THC. Um, which is relevant for glaucoma. So sometimes it's great to combine these things, but we need to know what we're combining, why we're combining it, and who's it for, and what's the purpose of them taking it. Um, and then we can probably better understand the, the potential for having these additive or super additive effects. Great. So I've got one more CBG question before we go to our first commercial break. And, and that is, you know, um, we have been aware of CBD, cannabidiol, for a long time. There's now um, a, a substantial and growing body of research on it where, you know, uh, you know except for in extreme circumstances, we're, we're pretty confident that CBD is, is pretty much good for everybody. We, we don't really have to be concerned about um, taking it. Um, and it'll, it'll, it'll help us or not, but it's, it's unlikely to hurt us. And, and we were talking about CBG, like uh, we're, we're just learning the benefits and, and uh, certainly anecdotally, we know about how great it is for things like, uh, you know, um, anxiety and neuropathy and things like that. But because we know so much less about it, um, do we know yet that uh, CBG is, you know, can be generally regarded as safe for everybody, uh, where where even though it hasn't been researched fully yet, where we're to the point like, listen, you know, uh, we know CBD is going to be safe. CBG's a lot like it. We know enough about it. Don't worry about taking it. And and I'll be clear. I'll say it for you. This is not medical advice to anybody out there who is a uh, who's thinking of it that way. But please, Hunter. 
Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. Um, I don't think we can say it yet. You know, I would like to say it. Um, I will say that in the work I've done, both in C. elegans and rodents, side by side with CBD, um, I found CBG to be better tolerated at very high doses than than I have CBD. Mm. So, um, and again, these are animal models. Tox work usually translates fairly well to humans, but not always. I mean, there, I don't know if you remember years ago, there was this, uh, this drug, this company called Bile, and um, they were making a drug for uh, modulating the endocannabinoid system. It was a FA inhibitor, and it looked great in rodents, and then they put it in humans, and three patients had, like, brain death. Wow. Now, I don't expect that that is going to happen with CBG, but you don't, you don't always know there's, and we certainly don't know the test, you know, like the, the level, we haven't tested the level, uh, to, to where we can go with CBG. Uh, whereas like, you know, there's not really an LD 50, a, a lethal dose that kills 50% of the population with THC. Um, no known reported deaths other than I think a guy got smashed by cannabis in his car in a car accident. Um, so I guess that might be related, but, um, and CBD also seems very safe. Uh, acutely we've given patients like 6,000 milligrams. Uh, there are concerns with high doses and, and the impact on liver, uh, especially with other drugs like valproic acid. We haven't done any of that work with CBG, um, and it's not as well known in humans like what doses we could go to. So uh, we're not there yet. It looks promising right now, though. I think uh, it looks like a, a very promising molecule in terms of both safety and efficacy. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, CBG just has such amazing uh, effects specifically for anxiety in the patients that I've uh, turned it on to it. And um, it, it's great where, especially when CBD doesn't work for them, I say, have you tried CBG? And then they're like, oh, wow, that actually worked a lot better for me. And, uh, and, mm-hmm. it's, and it's interesting, you know, everybody's, you know, different. And that's one of the things I like about cannabis is individualized medicine um, mm-hmm. because everybody is a bit different. So um, our next our next cannabinoid we're going to talk about is THC, but let's do that after the commercial break. So we're going to take a short break and be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is neuroscientist Hunter Land. And you know, without these advertisers, Shaping Fire would not happen. So please support them and let them know you heard them on Shaping Fire. Online cannabis seed distributors often seem to be all the same. But Multiverse Beans constantly works to provide you with cannabis seeds and a buying experience that you won't find elsewhere. Multiverse Beans works directly with the breeders to secure as many packs of your favorites as possible so that they have your favorite beans long after others have sold out. Some shops simply buy breeder minimums, but I get messages all the time from breeders saying some version of Multiverse asked to buy my entire run. At multiversebeans.com, you can find rare cannabis seeds from Night Owl Seeds, including the Dark Owl sublabel, Mephisto Genetics, Square One Genetics, Robin Hood Seeds, and Ethos, and so many others. Multiverse also initiates projects with breeders to secure exclusive packs that you simply won't find elsewhere. Multiverse founder Paul Lal sees himself not only as a curator of the best cannabis seeds available, but also as a collaborator with breeders, trying to bring novel crosses to the market that his customers are asking for. Multiverse Beans also creates exclusive stickers for their popular seed varieties that are available free only when you order those seeds from Multiverse. 
Check out their stickers like the badass recent slap for Mothman by Gnome Automatics on Instagram at Multiverse Beans. And finally, the freebies. As you'd expect, Paul sends quality freebies with every order. And when you spend at least $150, Multiverse allows you to choose your freebies from their special selections. You can get a 10% discount off regularly priced items when you use the discount code SHAPINGFIRE, all one word, at checkout. Sign up for their mailing list to be eligible for their monthly seed giveaway worth $250. So go to multiversebeans.com now for a buying experience you won't get anywhere else. Businesses everywhere are striving to reach people through advertising. We all know, though, that trying to reach a cannabis audience with a quality message is pretty difficult. That's why many people choose to advertise on the Shaping Fire podcast. Advertising on this show allows us time to talk about your product, service, or brand in a way that really lets people know what sets your company apart from others. Bold people who own companies know that getting into relationship with their customers is essential, and that is what we offer. We will explain your service or product, what sets it apart as desirable, and help our audience get in contact with you. It's pretty simple, really. Advertising does not have to be all whiz-bang, smoke, and mirrors. Nowadays, I find that people prefer just to be spoken to calmly, accurately, and with good intentions. If you want to make your own commercial spot well, you can do that, too. During these pandemic days, conventions and cannabis events are pretty poorly attended, but podcast listening is skyrocketing. With a commercial on Shaping Fire, you'll reach your customers in the privacy of their headphones right now, and will continue to reach new listeners as they explore the Shaping Fire back catalog of episodes again and again for years. A spot on Shaping Fire costs less than a printed postcard per person, and the Shaping Fire audience is full of smart cannabis enthusiasts, cultivators, and entrepreneurs who are always curious to learn. Do yourself a solid and contact us today for rates on podcast and Instagram advertising. Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out more. One of the challenges with buying autoflower seeds is that often you'll have as many different phenos as you will have seeds in a pack. That can be fun, sure, but so many varieties in one pack is a sign of an immature seed line that hasn't been worked enough. I prefer my autoflowers to be worked enough that each pheno in the pack really captures the aspects that the breeder was intending. This is why I recommend Gnome Automatics to my friends and listeners who grow automatic flowering cannabis seeds. Gnome Automatic seeds are not just crossed and released. They are painstakingly sifted again and again, tested in a wide range of conditions, and taken to a level of maturity that each plant will be recognizable by its traits. Traits that were hard-earned so that you can have your best growth cycle ever. Over the last 10 years, Gnome Automatics founder Dan Jimmy has become a trusted breeder and he continues to pour his passion of breeding cannabis into every variety he releases for you to grow. Check out the Gnome Automatics Instagram at gnome underscore automatics to see the impressive plants folks are growing. You can score Gnome Automatic seeds in feminized or regular at your favorite seed provider listed in the vendor section of their website. Commercial cannabis farms across the country love growing Gnome Automatics because of their consistency from seed to seed, short grow times, 
THC percentages, and colorful bag appeal. Farms interested in bulk seeds of more than 1,000 should reach out through gnomeautomatics.com. While on the website, be sure to check out the Gnome Automatics shirts and other merch section too. If you want reliable seeds, hand-built from effort, expert selection, and experience, choose Gnome Automatics. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shangolos, and my guest today is neuroscientist Hunterland. So let's pick back up right where we were with uh, THC targets or, or, or THC's functionality, because, you know, we, we, we talked a lot about our familiarity and the substantial body of research we have in CBD, cannabidiol, and then how we have less research in CBG, but we're already seeing all of these fantastic results anecdotally, and we're starting to see them in the lab as well. Well, THC, which is the cannabinoid that uh, most people love first in cannabis when they get turned on to it. Um, you know, it it acts in um, very uh, different ways than the other cannabinoids, uh, most of them that we really like. So 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 why don't you start with that? What are we when when we're when we're taking THC um, with it with longevity and wellness in mind? Um, what are the functions of THC that we're that we're looking to include in, in the mix? Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, in terms of longevity, there's been, we haven't seen anything that would say that THC is overtly poor for longevity. Um, and we haven't seen any major um, problems with acute toxicity or neurotoxicity at, at relevant doses. Uh, and there could certainly be some, some protection. Um, I would say it's just not incredibly clear. Um, on how specifically that may help with longevity, uh, other than maybe uh, some neuroprotection and autoimmune um, type components. Um, that's, that's essentially where we, where we stand right now. Mm -hmm. So, so um, let's let's hit on that autoimmune component real quickly because um, you know there are you know autoimmune disease is 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 at least is probably becoming way more common, but it is at least becoming uh more commonly diagnosed and and so what what action does thc uh take in that realm well, again um there's been there have been some studies uh especially around like rheumatoid arthritis and things um of that nature where we've seen clinical benefit um and there have been some studies preclinically that have outlined uh some benefit around these uh, cytokines, so these compounds that um, kind of indiscriminately kill cells. Um, but but again, it's it's difficult to make that broad leap to say that you know um, THC is is certainly going to extend uh, lifespan. I think if you have a condition like let's say. Uh, and, and we don't know this scientifically, so just to be clear, uh, the FDA hasn't approved THC or THC components for anxiety conditions. But let's say that, as many people do often share, that it helps with anxiety or sleep, then then by helping those components, by helping with sleep or, or pain sensation or anxiety, you may... Um, indirectly um, or downstream effects may may be that you have improved quality of life that you have better activities of daily living that you feel better as a person and that all feeds into this kind of health span category which ultimately could feed into lifespan 
you know, I often can, uh, suggest to patients who are having inflammatory issues that doing doing a uh, a a CBD dominant blend with THC, so you get the anti-inflammation properties of both, is a good combination. And and for me, that would be the the primary. Uh, longevity advantage uh, to THC um, are we still seeing that in the in the research that THC is still you know uh, considered a beast when it comes to decreasing inflammation in, in some models we do see that that THC is um, an effective anti-inflammatory we also see similar effects with CBD and um, some really interesting effects for with CBD a and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, but um, CBDA is the acid version that happen that that occurs naturally in the plant before we heat it. And I think um, both THCA, again, the acid version in the plant before it's heated or what we call decarboxylated, um, seem to be really important for those inflammatory responses. I think with uh, the conversation that that we're having about THC and how. Um, you know the the different things that it can do at different levels. This would be a really good time for us to address uh, the biphasic nature of cannabinoids because I, I think mm. that it is most obvious to most early users when it comes to THC. So, will you review that for us? Oh yes, I, I think I'm so glad you brought it up because I think this is probably one of the more critical uh, components of being able to use, especially use THC uh, for its potential to treat disease. So, you know, I think if you look at the literature um, and you look at self-reports, a lot of patients will say uh, THC at lower doses help my anxiety. We know it's approved for increasing appetite in multiple indications. Uh, we know that it helps with nausea. I think those are clear. But what's also clear is this biphasic effect where as you go up, then you lose those properties. And in fact, you induce the opposite. So low levels, anti-anxiety, high levels, massive paranoia, low levels, increase appetite, reduce nausea, high levels, vomiting, uh, and nausea, uh, the spins, etc. So uh, there is this therapeutic window um, that I think is in, is incredibly important. And this isn't you know just unique to cannabis and THC. It's also common in like Robitussin, for example. Um, it could be effective for for as an expectorant to help you breathe while you're if you have a cold, uh, maybe with cough and congestion. But if you drink the bottle, you're probably going to hallucinate. Right. So there's this therapeutic window. And I think that's where THC sits. The difficult thing around THC is we mentioned it earlier is this endocannabinoid tone. So you've got two things in, in patients that are, are, are a little bit confounding when you're doing cannabis research. Uh, one of those is how many CB1 receptors do they have and where are they? Because that's why. Certain people can take high doses of cannabis and they're fine, and then other people will take it and they'll have a lot of problems, right? They, they may be very prone to anxiety, and that's probably based on the dose. Um, and, and then secondly is if you're consuming it orally, um, metabolism. And I'm not speaking like metabolism, like how fit are you? I'm talking about uh, these 
compounds that are in your liver as well as elsewhere, but primarily in your liver. Um, they're called cytochrome P450s or, or SIP enzymes for short. And they break down uh, all, a lot of plant-derived molecules. And, um, and, these, and, and what the result is, is um, uh, the components, uh, the outcome, so to speak, of, of how much exposure gets to your brain. Mm-hmm. So certain people just can't break down THC very well, and they get very, very high levels. Um, and other people are rapid metabolizers, and they break it down really quickly. So we have to juggle these two things in research and there's no way of looking at somebody and saying oh you're going to break this down really quickly so i need to give you a higher dose or you have more cb1 receptors on your pathways that result in anxiety so we need to be more careful wow there's so much in what you just said let's see all right so going back a little ways um uh, uh, I, I, I will say this, and you do not have to comment on it, but it has been a long time since I've thought about robo-tripping. Uh, you know, you <laughs> talked about drinking the whole <laughs> bottle of Robitussin, and yeah. b- back when I was a, a, a you know, young freelance um, pharmacist, if you will, in college, <laughs> um, you, know, you know, it was something that we heard you could do. And so, and so you know, you got to get the right kind and all this kind of stuff. And so we tried it. And it's, 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 it's really unpleasant for, for your gut and everything. Um, but, oh, mm-hmm. gosh, um, yeah. So I, I, <laughs> I haven't thought about that in 25 years. So, so that's interesting. Um, uh, the, the second thing is, is um, you know, the, we're, when we're talking about each person is going to have their own, I don't know what you'd call it, but a biphasic threshold for THC. I think that's another good reason why when people start to use um, cannabis medicine for the first time that includes THC, that you always start low and slow because you may be particularly sensitive. You may not be, but, but it's better to start slow and, and work your way up based on an, an actual plan of the results you want instead of just assuming you're going to be fine and starting high and then having to pay the piper because, um, you know, when, when THC goes from, you know, jolly good and relaxing to, oh, my God, I'm, I'm freaking out and do I need to call paramedics, which you don't, but you might, you definitely think you might like that. That is a really bad day at the office. It is bad. It is, you know, THC induced psychosis is pretty scary. I've, I've witnessed some high dose THC studies. Um, the FDA in, in some cases, um, wants you to do high dose studies to figure out where this threshold is. And it can be quite scary. And when we did some of that work with Sativex, uh, patients had to be sedated. So, um, remember earlier when we were talking about, um, GABA, uh, the, the benzo like effect being cut off by, CB1 receptors. Um, that's one of the reasons that you get this anxiety. So one of the treatments uh, to, to prevent that is to give uh, benzos. And that's often what can happen in hospital settings when patients get this massive paranoia. So it is it is scary. Um, with for those of you who don't know what Sativex is, it's a um, it's a basically a 50-50 blend of a uh, two different plants, high THC and high CBD plant um, that was used in clinical trials. And a lot of the research that we have around cannabinoids is based on that particular medicine that's approved, you know, in about 28 countries, but not 
in the U.S. And when they did those trials, um, as they continue to learn about it, they had a self-titration built in to the clinical trials. And this is something I worked on uh, in in a a good bit of depth. And, um, you know, we would see patients kind of all over the map. Some would have six administrations a day and some would have 12. And you can never look at them and tell. And we asked them to balance the safety and efficacy. So to go up to the point where they felt like it was helping and they weren't getting bad side effects. And and I think that's a good rule of thumb if you're using THC. Um, actually going to the point where you're intoxicated may be negative. Uh, there's some evidence that when you get really high, you increase sensation to pain um, and increase sensation to, to feeling in general. I mean, you know, if you go back to the 60s when a lot of cannabis was being used at you know, music festivals. I, I don't know that, that they were doing it to decrease sensation, um, and uh, and it may be that that lower doses are better for treating pain than intoxicating doses. So I want to take a sidebar because you mentioned a topic that I'm very interested in, and um, that it's very hard to find information on, and that is uh, um, rapid metabolizers. So mm-hmm. so I only learned about rapid metabolizers, you know, about about four years ago or so and um and it explains a lot and and so i i want to set it up in a certain way and then i'd just like you to speak to it because you know in cannabis it is it is very common for people to have um dumb internet arguments about dosage (laughs) right and and you know you know uh, dr russo is is talking about you know optimum doses for thc you know, you know, well under uh, well under twenty percent for nearly everybody, and whereas other times, you're 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 you're, you know, I, I'll watch somebody eat a two hundred milligram edible mm-hmm. of THC, and I'm like, how in the hell is that even possible? And okay, if somebody is a long term chronic pain patient, certainly tolerance can be made up over time, but sometimes these people are like newbies, and and they're just eating that, and and it doesn't seem to phase them. And, and I didn't really understand that there were these rapid metabolizer people until I met a whole family of them. And um, it was interesting. I was um, you know, aware of their cannabis usage and, and, and the doses that they were telling me that they were taking for their various issues um, were like, as far as I was concerned, they were off the charts. Like they were, mm-hmm. they were really high. They were, you know, to, you know, to, 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 to relax after work, you know, somebody who was relatively new was, was taking, you know, 80 milligrams of, of THC and RSO. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. I'd be, mm. I'd be crying at 80 milligrams, let alone without my tolerance that I've got from years of use. Right. Um, and mm-hmm. then, uh, I was at a, uh, a music event on the Island with one of the people in this family. And, um, I watched them eat, um, five grams of mushrooms um, for their first time, and um, and and it and it didn't affect them. And and they're like, oh, I'm a rapid metabolizer. You know, it it just mm-hmm. my body just like metabolizes everything. Like I can't have any fun. And I'm like, man, a you're lucky <laughs> because taking a heroic dose like that without knowing it your first time could be also be a really bad day. Mm-hmm. So so it's it's weird because rapid metabolizers um, they explain a lot of these kind of black swan events that that as somebody who is trying to support people to learn about 
you know, cannabis medicine specifically, but, you know, the wider field of entheogens as well, these people, like, they, they, their biology breaks the rules. So would mm-hmm. you just speak to the, I don't know, the metabolics of, 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 of rapid metabolizers? Sure. Um, you know, it's, it's fairly common that a proportion in these trials will have rapid, meta- rapid metabolizers. And um, there's actually a test that we can do. So it's about $450. And you can be tested to find out which enzymes. So the enzymes are the components that break down uh, these plant compounds as well as other compounds like drugs in the liver. And you can look and you can say, oh, wow. Um, I have a really elevated or I'm most likely to metabolize drugs that are um, through the 3A4 pathway, so CYP3A4 or 2C19. There, there are a bunch of these different uh, enzymes, and they could say pretty definitively say, you know, if you take these drugs, you're going to have to take higher levels or they're not going to work because as soon as they get to your liver, they're going to be broken down immediately. Uh, so that, that does happen. Um, and you can also have the, the opposite effect where a lot of patients, um, will, will break them down very slowly and they have to go with ultra low doses, uh, to avoid, you know, toxicity and side effects. Um, the, the other interesting component here too is um that that kind of levels goes on with this is the um is the food effects so you know administration in let's say a gummy could be very different than administration with fat we know that with thc um if it's taken with with a high fat meal you increase exposure three to five fold so that brings on another level you know you've got this endocannabinoid tone then you've got you know how quickly or slowly are they metabolizing thc or other cannabinoids and then did they take it with food um, because then we've increased the levels um, that wouldn't normally be there if you took it on an empty stomach so it gets pretty complicated yeah, it really does. And and again, this is another good argument for one size fits all. Just because your friend is taking this other particular blend of cannabinoids and it's working for them doesn't mean that specific blend is going to work for you. And we really need to, you know, start with the basics and build up your endocannabinoid, you know, medicine exposure over time. And also why I, you know, recommend that patients always keep a uh a, a dosing journal for any any entheogens, um, just so you remember what worked for you and and what didn't, and especially what didn't. Right, and I would just I would say in that journal they should also take note of if it, if it's something that they're consuming rather than smoking, they should probably take note of what they had to eat mm-hmm. and, and and what the format was because you know if you take it it could be so minor as in if you take it with MCT oil, medium chain triglycerides, which is what a lot of these products come in versus something like sesame or corn oil or hemp seed oil. The exposure is way different. Um, the, the MCT oil kind of carries it great directly to the liver. And uh, some of these other um, fats can, can push some of it into the lymphatic system. So it gets into the bloodstream, but without going to the liver first to get broken down. So uh, again, um, it's, I wish it was simple, <laughs> yeah. but it's, it's not. <clears throat> That's really interesting. I hadn't heard that about um, sesame oils being able to push it um, 
uh, into the system bypassing the liver. I'm going to have to look into that. Yes, some, a proportion of it. And, mm-hmm. and this is kind of the same uh, technology if you hear like SEDS, like self-emulsifying drug delivery systems mm-hmm. or like some of these um, that, are, that are used in beverages or fast acting. Uh, most of it's not proven, but there are some uh, data available that, that show that some of this technology can push it quickly into the lymphatic system and you don't have to wait for it to get broken down by the liver and, um, and there's higher levels in your blood earlier. Great. So, all right. So uh, let's move on to uh, the next cannabinoid. Uh, and, and since we already did CBD, CBG, and THC, which are, are most readily available for you know, regular folks, um, I'm going to create a basket of the rest of of the um, cannabinoids, you know, um, uh, one that I know that you've done a lot of research in is uh, uh, canflavin, but also there's there's all these other uh, phytocannabinoids that that um, either we won't have the time to talk about today, or there isn't even any research on them. So I would like you to generally speak to them as this: for people who um, prefer whole plant. Um, resin preparations uh like you know what we call many people call rso rick simpson oil but like a whole a whole um a whole resin extract like that um how should we wrap our heads around these these um these trace and novel cannabinoids that will like all also be in there right they're they're not going to be mentioned on the label they're probably not going to be tested for but uh but most many of us who are uh, fans of whole plant medicine we like them in there because because of a, of a belief that they hold a synergistic quality, maybe some kind of protectant nature from um, having a bad experience, and an assumption that they're probably good for us in ways that we don't know. But like the, there's a lot of assumptions in what I just said, and so and so you know, with the goal of trying to. Um, speak to how these extra components play a role in longevity for people who are going to be designing their own supplementation system. What do you have to say about these, these kind of like variables that we can't control, but we are just assuming they're going to be okay. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's difficult um, because it's to some degree, it's a little bit of a, a mystery soup. And I would say that mystery soup could be very important. We know that some of the cannabinoids, um, there, there's one called THCP uh, that's in, in, in very small amounts in certain plants, but it's a very potent CB1 agonist at low levels. Um, so that may be of critical importance uh, to some of the, these botanical extracts. Um, but, but having it there or not having it there could ultimately make a tremendous difference. I, I would say if you found something that's a botanical extract that you like and that worked for you, then I wouldn't, you know, trying to, to get something different, you may have a very different effect. Uh, this could be down to the terpenes. It could be down to these minor cannabinoids. Um, canflavins um, could be of critical importance around inflammatory processes. So um, without knowing what that is, it's difficult to say, hey, you know, this group of other things, this other mystery soup is going to help or it's going to hurt. Um, and, and you could, as I mentioned earlier, that, that, that those mystery molecules could be the holy grail um, to, to treating a disease, or they could be counteracting one another. Um, and we see this with terpenes and cannabinoids. So uh, without having it 
better characterized. It's it's really tough. It's really tough to say um, because they're all so unique. You know, yeah. it's, it's a tough one. <clears throat> so to wrap up this particular topic before we move on, I want to talk uh, briefly about. Um, uh, endocannabinoid deficiency syndrome. Um, our mutual friend, Dr. Ethan Russo, has been on Shaping Fire several times um, uh, talking about endocannabinoid deficiency syndrome as it relates to different research that he has done. And um, it's, it's interesting that, you know, one of the reasons we want to supplement our body with these phytocannabinoids that we are sourcing from the cannabis plant is because our own body is not producing the endocannabinoids, the endogenous cannabinoids that are made inside of the body properly. <clears throat> and so, you know, the, the causes for endocannabinoid deficiency include, you know, poor nutrition, poor sleep, uh, anxiety, um, and, uh, immune suppressing pharmaceuticals, and, uh, you know, environmental toxins, you know, a whole bunch of things that are just generally not good for our human. And, and we get that, right? Um, but, I'm of the opinion that the vast majority of Americans are are probably suffering from endocannabinoid deficiency syndrome from the beginning. Um, and so, you know, I, I personally think everybody should be taking some kind of, of supplementation to strengthen it. Um, would you speak to, um, I, I don't know if you can speak to the commonness of endocannabinoid deficiency, but would you speak to um, the idea of endocannabinoid deficiency as it relates to, you know, longevity and, and how, you know, being deficient in endocannabinoids will degrade probably both your length of life and your, your health span of life? Ooh, that's a, that's a good one. Um, I think it's, again, it's difficult to say uh, definitively. I think we can both agree, and, and just about everybody will agree that the endocannabinoid system is critical to health and a can play a major component in a variety of different diseases. The, the interesting thing about endocannabinoids is they, they're, they're made on demand and they're metabolized very quickly, especially most of them inside the brain, right? And we can't, it would be great if we could just test you like a regular blood test and draw some blood and say, oh, you're anandamide oh, and you're 2 AGLO. Oh, that right? make everything say, so oh, much easier. It would make it so easy, but unfortunately, the levels in your blood and how quickly they change based on stress and environment, um, it, it, they don't match what happens in the brain. So if you have endocannabinoid deficiency syndrome, so to speak, that affects that's important because remember these cannabinoid receptors are also in the periphery so it's not just anxiety and mood it could be joint pain it could be um, inflammatory bowel disease something completely unrelated to what's going on the cns then then maybe you could examine this and get some idea of 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 you know a dosing regimen that would help that but for uh, cns related disorders you can't really look at it. Um, so I would agree with you that it's the endocannabinoid system or dysregulation um, may be a critical component to a lot of diseases. Um, is it the cause or is it a symptom? I, I think it's still very difficult to, to determine, but we do know that it does happen and is associated with many different diseases. All right. So the next thing I want to talk about is um, how functional ratios between the different cannabinoids, how that plays a role in your overall health span. Because, you know, uh, you know, 
the underlying idea that that I'm suggesting that 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 folks find a blend of cannabinoids that work for them and then take it, you know, as a daily supplement to keep their endocannabinoid um, strong or their their endocannabinoid system strong. Um, how much of each really does uh, play a role? And and you know, I've gone in and out of of being behind functional ratios when I was, when I was all new to this, you know, I was, I was very into the, okay, do we want a a 20 to one ratio or is it a two to one ratio of CBD to THC? And, and, you know, you know, this ratio is for Parkinson's and this ratios. And, and, and I realized over time that those might be good places to start, but really every person has got their own functional ratio I think. And so um, would you explain how you approach uh, thinking about ratios uh, from a, you know, a longevity and wellness um, perspective as a research scientist? Well, in terms of longevity and wellness, we don't know a lot. I mean, the, the best, the most recent work is one of the kind of first examinations around C. elegans, um, looking at isolated compounds versus like this botanical drug substance that contained CBD and CBG and, and THC together in combination. But, um, you know, is that the ideal ratio? What happens when you change that? How does that translate to humans? I think it's still um, in the early stages. Um, in terms of functional race ratios and how they potentially could treat disease, I think that's a little bit more clear cut, Um, especially in when not to use certain things or when to keep certain things low, like THC, and where it may be better to have higher amounts of THC or a, or a smaller ratio with THC and CBD. I think that's, that's a little bit more clear again, um, to do this research with so many different humans who are all different with so many different diseases and so many different variables is tough. And it's, it's almost, um, like, you know, it's a case by case Basis, as you mentioned, you you said you kind of have like certain ratios that you think are ideal for certain diseases, but that may only be the the starting point. They may be able to be further optimized, um, or on the contrary, there might be certain conditions where you don't need to optimize them very much at all. It may just be that um, it works at at that level, kind of that disease state. You know. Uh- this this next thought is for folks who are you know so far down the path with this that they are they're producing their own medicine because you know as as we see when when the rubber hits the road when somebody is sick enough and western medicine has not been the solution for them and they find their way to cannabis and they find something that works it's a very short path from oh my gosh this works a little bit to suddenly they're you know growing their own plants that are the types of plants that they want and then they're processing it using you know ethanol and they are making their own custom blends that work for their particular body right and um it's it's been great you know over the last say five years with um the advent of some of these uh spectacular hemp varieties that you know will isolate one uh cannabinoid like uh you know the 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 all cbd 
uh, hemp uh, plant that you know uh, comes from Oregon CBDs or the or the all CBG version. You know, so so you can you can grow these plants and. And and make one, uh, make a CBG oil and make a CBD oil and then make your type one plant, your THC oil, you know, make three different oils and then and then blend them like a vintner would like, you know, blending a red table wine or something. And, and you know, that's what I had to do after my brain injury to find something that was going to be. A, a low enough amount of THC that I could, um, you know, take it during the day and still be functioning at my best level, but then also high levels of CBD I wanted for for the neurogenesis and the brain support, and then and then then when when it became available the CBG plants because they keep my central nervous system from running too hot, which um, which happens to me because of other diagnoses. So. So this idea of, of hand blending them, um, I, I think is a real is a real winner. Um, so so I guess my my my, my I, guess, I guess I just would like to hear your thoughts on the gap between um, what patients need, how patients become citizen scientists, and how so many patients go to the the, the licensed market for their first medicine and and it doesn't work for them like it has worked for other people yeah i i'm on board with the idea of blending to a certain specification from multiple different plants so you know there is a limit to what can be produced in an idyllic ratio um, from plants i mean it's nice to think I mean, a lot of people think, oh, you know, this plant, it's here, it's on earth, it's for us, it's to cure us, it's to heal us. Um, and that's that's fine, but um, plants aren't actually here so we can eat them predominantly because, of, you know, a lot of these are defense mechanisms and um they're not they're not bred in a such a way that that if we that they were so magic that they would just be gone at least historically now obviously we grow them and breed them for recreational use or medicinal use and that's that's helped but i i don't think that we'll be able to just say oh this is the perfect plant in the perfect ratio and it will stay at that perfect ratio i think to your point of saying hey let's have multiple different extracts and blend them to a ratio of active components that we know help at this ratio is probably a much better approach than just saying, you know, some arbitrary named cannabis cultivar um, is the best for treating this disease. And, and unfortunately, I think we've seen this in dispensaries in many cases where, you know, grandma goes in and she said, Oh, you know, I've got pain what should I use? And somebody gives her, you know, AK 47 or, you know, whatever. And, uh, that's not, (laughs) they didn't tell her about dosing. They didn't tell her about ratio or, or anything like that. She has a bad experience. And her thought is I've tried medicinal cannabis. It didn't work. It doesn't work. And it made me sick, you know, um, or, you know, they take, somebody says, Oh, you know, CBD is good for, it may help my epilepsy. And they take 25 milligram gummy and it doesn't do anything. And they're like, Oh, I've tried CBD for seizures and it didn't work. So, um, I think, uh, you're kind of on the right track and more on the scientific track and the others are kind of more on the, uh, branding and, um, uh, kind of, um, uh, 
optimistic idea that something magical is going to happen. So I want to finish off this set with a conversation that um, you know I know you're really well versed in, and I spend a lot of time thinking about. And 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 because I keep an open mind about it, my opinion has definitely uh, changed over the last you know decade um, of of working with cannabis medicine, and it is. Um, the idea of uh, whole plant medicine versus using isolate, and and this is this is how I want I'm going to set you up is that you know uh, because because you know Dr. Ethan Russo has been my mentor from the very beginning and um, he has historically um, you know I dare say ferociously whole plant and um, and you know I learned that from him and then. Um, and for those who aren't familiar, whole plant means that um, you're, 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 you're using a method to extract all of the resin from the plant, and then you are uh, you know, taking that resin orally. Um, and then you know, nowadays, when there are so many more labs and people are, are uh, you know, separating uh, the resin from the plant and then continuing to extract the single molecules of say CBD or CBG from the resin and then and then either you know selling that as a as a as a powder or taking you know that powder and putting into a gummy or 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 whatever it is um, and then and then at the, at the extreme what is going to become much more common is pharmaceutical products where uh, different components of the resin are isolated and then combined and you know i've i've gone so far when i've when i've been talking at conventions to call this like you know frankenstein built like preparations and and you know i i'm not quite that hot about you know it as much as i used to be but there but we do know that isolate acts different than whole plant medicine it is it, it you know there's a um there's a plateau point where where more doesn't uh help anymore um and and many believe that it, it acts differently because it's not necessarily working in a synergistic uh, way with the rest of the novel and minor cannabinoids that are in the resin and yet there is absolutely good use for it the first one for me that i had to come around to and embrace isolate was when cbd became popular but before the cbd plants were everywhere and so and so people were like we want to take cbd in our you know cannabis oil but there's no cbd in the plants that we have near us and so you know, we decided to start, um, you know, spiking a type one plant, like a THC plant. We, we started, you know, like, like talking about spiking those preparations with a CBD isolate because CBD isolate was available before um, CBD plants were in a lot of places, let alone CBD plants mm -hmm. that don't have THC that are going to mess with your ratio, right? right? And so, you know, I, I, I first went to Ethan about it, and he's all like, yeah, until you can get the plant, you know, you can spike with... Um, uh, with a powder. And, you know, we talked to Dr. Sunil Agarwal, and he's all like, yeah, you know, until you... Well, well damn, because suddenly I was, I was interested in isolate and recommending it that, that patients use it for this particular purpose. Now, with that big setup, I know that, uh, you know, you and I have discussed the challenge between balancing the kind of 
you know, ideal nature won't hurt me, nature can heal me kind of like beautiful, you know, ideal plant medicine headspace that I really grasp onto with with the more more realistic idea or or differently realistic idea that good cannabis medicine is the same every time gives repeatable results and hits the goals of the patient and you know I, I gotta say that there's so many variables in in making your own cannabis medicine that that very often we won't hit those goals and so in so you know breaking it apart and putting it back together by hand like a pharmaceutical company would or like you have to do in the lab for your studies that makes a lot of sense as far as control goes but then it also makes me cringe because i really do think there is some kind of like unknown x variable of healing that comes with whole plant so so i know that this is also probably another topic that you could do a whole show on on her but um mm-hmm. but but i know there's a lot of people out there who are making their own med- medicine who really chew on this and and i'd like to hear your thoughts sure uh, i think it's an interesting topic and and like you said it could be a long topic uh, there are a couple components first i would say that if you're looking at isolated compounds uh, quite frankly you should be careful about um, what the excipients are in those those compounds and i think this kind of goes without saying for most of your audience but when you when you're making an isolate um, and this isn't the case with every isolate maker there's a lot are of you gonna good... are you gonna just are you gonna define what an excipient is are you gonna get there oh yes I'm gonna get there All right, cool. but uh, yes uh, so an excipient I'll just go go for it now right cool, an cool. excipient is um, the a component that is not uh, what is in that particular um, ingredient? So, an excipient like adulterants in the isolate. Yeah, I, you could call them adulterants, but they're used specifically for the extraction and crystallization process. For, mm-hmm. So, one method of crystallization to make it into a white powder out of a resin is to add things like heptane or pentane, um, and you can and you can clean those up, right? But Depending on who's making it, you could have um, some of these nasty solvents in there. So it's not it's not the isolate that would necessarily be the problem, but it could be the provider. So I would say if people are using those, it would be important to get a COA that shows things like metals and everything else, but also what solvents are present in that isolate. And that's where, you know, um, if there aren't regulations in place to make sure the stuff's clean, that taking solvents over and over again, like naphthala or paint thinner or uh, butane, residual butane, could be problematic. So uh, just something to, to keep in mind when you're using those compounds to fortify existing uh, uh, formulations. The other thing just to point out uh, on the isolates versus the non-isolates is I think there are certain conditions where, you know, to get the entourage or this rational polypharmacy uh, kind of effect may not be needed. And and an example uh, would be in some cases of pediatric epilepsy. Um, I don't think the jury's out on how much THC is is good or bad for children, um, and and I'm of the uh, the group that would say until we know if we can 
avoid it and get the result we want, that may be beneficial. I think there's a lot more safety data on CBD for kids. So if, um, if I can give a child CBD in an isolated form and then be seizure free and not have side effects, then I don't, I don't see a good reason to say, let's add a bunch of other stuff in there if they're already, basically if the treatment is successful. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen all the time. It actually is quite infrequent that that happens. And that's where you'll need to, to balance, you know, this whole plant extract. Can these other cannabinoids um, play a critical role to reducing seizures or help treat disease? And, and what are those components? Um, so uh, it may be that uh, that fortifying existing whole plant extracts with other isolated compounds is the best way to get uh, what you call Frankenstein medicine, but I would say maybe optimized medication. Um, it, that may be the only way to get there. It's probably uh, a very similar to the argument you just made, but for, for those of us who really idealize whole plant medicine, would you make the case to me as a whole plant medicine aficionado on why I should be open to the kinds of formulations that are presently happening at pharmaceutical companies? Do you mean isolated compounds or yeah, whole plant? Yeah, so, well, like, like, like you know, you know, we can take you know Epidiolex or Sativex or any of these where where um, you know they have taken multiple components of cannabis resin and then they have put together those exclusively. So, so it's, it's not the entire melange of resin, but they have taken the parts that they think are most essential to getting the desired results for the patient. And, um, but it's not whole plant, but mm-hmm. there are reasons for it. So, I, I, you know, as somebody who, like, you have a foot in both camps, right? You, you believe in both. Right. And so, so for me, who is still resistant to uh you know pharmaceutical preparations um i i would like to hear what you what what you what you would say to somebody like me so that all of us who think like me can learn so you know i would say well sativex is a whole plant medicine it's it's literally an extract of two different um, cultivars of cannabis and blended together so you have a idealic ratio or at least what they thought was an idealistic ratio when they invented it now the the other components the the excipients so what that cannabis is in um, isn't necessarily the same as what is commonly available um, in in dispensaries, right? So they use other kind of pharmaceutical components that that may or may not be important, uh, so to speak, for for delivery. Now, Epidiolex is a CBD isolate and sesame oil with strawberry flavoring and a, a little bit of ethanol to dissolve that strawberry flavoring, and that's that's primarily done. So you know these kids that are. Um, you know, very sick and off of often they have like autistic like features or not all of them, obviously, but oftentimes that's what happens in these uh, cognitively delayed children. And if it doesn't taste good, then they're not going to take it. Right. So, um, you know, I think in these instances, having, you know, a pharmaceutical that is prescribed by a physician that's covered by insurance uh, that works. 
is is a great step in the right direction. Um, we know that the doses that you need for CBD to control seizures are usually quite high. So uh, from the hundreds to even thousands of milligrams needed to control seizures. If you were a patient, it's almost like um, it's almost like dangling a carrot. You know, it's like, hey, we have this treatment. It may help you or it may help your child, but you're going to have to spend $100 a day or $50 a day to buy it off the shelf. Um, then it becomes unattainable. So having a system, whether it's whole plant, you know, a whole plant extract uh, that goes and meets FDA requirements for being the same thing, standardized, that's proven to work in a disease, accepted by physicians and scientists and, you know, whether you're from the deep south and think cannabis is evil or whether you're a cannabis connoisseur where you're like, hey, we've got data that works and it's safe um, and it's covered by payers and insurance um, is a really good situation um, for patients uh, until we fix all the other stuff. And that could be for an isolate or it could be for a whole plant extract that we just know is the same. And because we've proven it works, um, it gets reimbursed from, from insurance. I think that's a really good uh, way to ground that argument, Hunter, that, that in the end, um, what is our end goal? Our end goal is not whole plant medicine. Our end goal is to reduce the suffering of our fellow humans. And if, and if we can get there in a way that is safe for their physical body and also relieves their symptoms, um, whether or not it's whole plant or it's whole plant spiked with isolate or it is a you know pharmaceutical blend that was put in a lab, like they're all hopefully getting us to the goal, which is the reduced suffering. And, and that's the point. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And, and you're just... Your audience, most of your audience, I would expect that, that most of you guys out there listening um, are not anti-cannabis. But there are people um, that are completely anti-cannabis. And there are people that are maybe on the fence, but they're just not going to a dispensary. They're not, you know, and a lot of doctors are not going to prescribe grandma or grandpa, you know, um, purple kush or, you know, name any one of these, these different uh, cultivars of cannabis. Cannabis, they're just not going to do it. Uh, so if you, we want to help that subset of people, um, whether they're right and ro or wrong in their opinions, um, having a cannabis extract, a whole plant medicine or an isolate that can help reduce their suffering, that would be prescribed by a physician, um, has a much higher chance of success than trying to convince them to talk to their bud tender or grow their own cannabis and make their own medicine. It's just, it's not going to happen for some folks. Yeah, right on. Well said. All right. Well, this, this set has gone a little long. This is a great conversation, um, but let's go ahead and take a break. And then when we come back, we're going to have a, a, a nice short set where we're talking about a couple of the things to be careful for um, when taking um, cannabis uh, to increase your longevity and health span. Um, you are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is neuroscientist Hunter Land. You've heard me talk about the award-winning cannabis seeds that come from the analytical breeding program of Seth and Eric Crawford, who founded Oregon CBD Seeds. In fact, Seth was a guest on Shaping Fire in 2020 to talk about triploid genetics. 
Seth and Eric are now releasing high THC seeds for home growers and farms as Grow the Revolution Seeds at gtrseeds.com. Their high THC seeds are extraordinary in that they will start to flower at 16 and a half hours of daylight instead of the typical 14 and a half hours of daylight. That means in most regions, your plants will start to flower outdoors in the middle of July instead of the middle of August, which means these photo period plants finish in September and not October, totally upending the photo period seed market. Seth and Eric took their prized early flowering CBG line and bred it to some of the most desired verified genetics out there, including Sour Diesel, Triangle Kush, Wedding Cake, Chem Dog, Skittles, and others. These crosses all express powerful photoperiod terpene profiles and THC, giving you a great high. GTR Seeds has a new THCV line with plants like Double Durbin and Gigantor that boast one-to-one THC to THCV, and people want that THCV. GTR Seeds are very consistent, true-growing, inbred F1s from stabilized inbred parent lines. These seeds are nearly homogenous, and the plants should all grow the same. There is only one phenotype in every pack available as diploids and triploids. Seth and Eric's company is still family-owned, patient and employee-centric, and partially powered by their two acres of solar panels. Everyone can purchase these seeds and the entire catalog of Oregon CBD seeds at gtrseeds.com. Go to gtrseeds.com today and choose something revolutionary for your next indoor or outdoor run. Sometimes the topics I want to share with you are far too brief for an entire Shaping Fire episode. In those instances, I post them to Instagram. I invite you to follow my two Instagram profiles and participate online. The Shaping Fire Instagram has follow-up posts to Shaping Fire episodes, growing and processing best practices, product trials, and, of course, gorgeous flower photos. The Shango Los Instagram follows my travels on cannabis garden tours, my successes and failures in my own garden, insights and best practices from personal grows everywhere, and always gorgeous flower photos. On both profiles, the emphasis is on sharing what I've learned in a way that you can replicate it in your own garden, your own hash lab, or for your own cannabinopathic health. So I encourage you to follow at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los and join our online community on Instagram. After you've caught up on the latest Shaping Fire episodes, do you sometimes wish there was more cannabis education available to learn? Well, we got you. Shaping Fire has a fabulous YouTube channel with content not found on the podcast. When I attend conventions to speak or moderate panels, I always record them and bring the content home for you to watch. The Shango Los YouTube channel has world-class speakers, including Zoe Sigmund's lecture, Understanding Your Endocannabinoid System, Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile, Frenchie Cannoli's Lost Art of the Hashishin presentation, Nicholas Mahmoud on regenerative and polyculture cannabis growing, Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world, Eric Vlosky and Josh Rutherford on solventless extraction, and Jeff Lowenfels on the soil food web. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system, too. While there, be sure to check out the three 10-part Shaping Fire Sessions series, one with Kevin Jodry, one with Dr. Ethan Russo, and one with Jeff Lowenfels. And even my own presentations on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business, even though the risks are so high. As of today, there's over 200 videos that you can check out for free. 
So go to youtube.com forward slash Shango Los or click on the link in the newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I am your host, Shango Los, and my guest today is neuroscientist Hunter Land. So here we are with the big finish. You know, Hunter, I wanted to talk about a couple of things that folks should be careful of um, when designing their uh, supplementation regime to increase their their like lifelong wellness and health span because um, because you know people do put other things in their body as well and and nothing in the body uh, you know exists in a vacuum and so you know we recently did a, a full-length show with uh, 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 Jehan Marku about interaction between cannabis and other pharmaceuticals but I, I think it deserves to be brought up here as well since we're talking about you know wellness and people you know developing a supplemental routine that they use every day um, because there is a very you know there it's very possible maybe even likely that there will be interactions between the cannabis regimen that that they come up with for themselves and other things that they are taking and um, so I would like you to speak to the idea of of cannabis you know drug drug interaction um, so people can understand the lay of the land as they are thinking this through on how they're going to proceed, please. Sure. Yeah. I think it's a very important point. Uh, I'd like listeners to keep in mind that, um, you know, the reason that we have a lot of these enzymes in our liver and we have our liver to process, uh, compounds that we're exposed to. And many of those are plant compounds. And the way that these enzymes work um, is when they're exposed to the compound, it breaks it down to something um, not active or usually inactive that's easily excreted by the body. There's a lot of overlap on what each enzyme breaks down, um, whether it's a medicine or a drug, a plant, a nutritional matter the body doesn't know whether it's artificial or if it's real it just it sees something that it needs to get out of the body or at least it thinks and i'm, I'm uh, pers- personalizing the liver now which is a little bit odd for a scientist <laughs> but um it, so it doesn't really you, you don't really see this distinction between natural and synthetic as far as the liver's concerned it just knows it needs to excrete these compounds the problem comes when you only have x amount of enzyme to break down one drug and an, or one compound, and you also need that enzyme to, to break down another compound. And uh, that's one example of where you can get elevations. And we see this a lot with CBD, especially at higher doses. So, um, for example, uh, there's a drug called clopizam that's commonly prescribed in LGS and Dravet, two pediatric, you know, really sad forms of epilepsy. And what happens is if you take CBD in conjunction with clopizam, both the drug clopizam goes up as well as the active metabolite 7-hydroxy-CBD, which also works. Both of those go up. Um, when, when clopizam goes up, it causes sedation. Um, and, and we saw this in clinical trials, and the patients needed to reduce 
oftentimes reduced either CBD or clopizam after the trial and, and clinical practice to limit this this um, potential drug-drug interaction. Uh, there's also interactions around uh, potential interactions around bleeds for things like warfarin, which is a commonly prescribed drug for, for people with clotting uh, that need to reduce clotting factors. And um, probably the most concerning thing that we saw uh, in all the CBD research is um, risk for liver uh, toxicity. So we, we didn't really see any per se liver toxicity, but we did see indicators in blood work that said, hey, this might not be good for the liver at this dose. And that was commonly in really high doses. And it was also common when they were taking another drug uh, called Depakote, which is a known liver toxin. And, and these are the ones we know about. There are probably, you know, five to 10 other drugs that may um, have this interaction with CBD where it may not be a good thing. And the, the same thing can be said for some of these supplements. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of supplements that combine a lot of different plant components, and some of these can be enzyme inhibitors, so inhibit inhibiting the, the, the components that break down the drugs, or they can also induce them, basically tell your body, oh, we don't have enough of this, so we're going to increase these levels, and then, then you're not going to get the, the, the quality or the amount of exposure needed to treat your disease. So these can be a, a tough little balancing act um, if you're doing it on your own. Um, so it's always good to, to consult with a pharmacist or a physician about these potential drug-drug interactions. And for considering the state of the technology and everything right now, you know, for, for the common person, probably the place to start would be to Google your, um, your pharmaceutical that you're taking and the word cannabis and start there, right? Because like that's, that's pretty much going to be your entry to any of this kind of data and then, and then follow up what, with whatever studies you come across, if there are any. Sure. Yeah, that would be one way you could definitely do that. Again, cannabis, you know, if you look up, if you've got a, just a little bit of CBD in your cannabis, that's probably not going to be the same as if you're taking, like you mentioned, a high CBD chemovore of hemp, right? So, mm -hmm. so dose is definitely a critical component to these. Uh, I think it's a reasonable place to start. Um, the other thing would be, um, you know, to pharmacists actually are pretty pretty knowledgeable in this area and the other type of drug drug interaction that we see is pharmacodynamic interactions and what that means is like how does it it might not be the molecules themselves interacting but it may be that kind of like you're having the entourage effect to treat disease you might have a entourage effect for inebriation or sleep or something mm -hmm. like that whereas like if you take if you drink alcohol with cannabis you know they're not necessarily interacting directly but um they may have a pharmacodynamic interaction like then if you didn't want to drive the car with your you know x amount of drinks you might definitely not want to drive the car with that plus cannabis um so those are things and that that happens with other medications too like commonly prescribed antidepressants or or a lot of these drugs that are mood stabilizers and uh things that are for sleep so you might get these other interactions especially with uh, THC, the pharmacodynamic ones. 
I've got one more safety question, and then we'll wrap up. Um, you know, we, we've been talking about a lot of different um, uh, dosages, and some of them are quite high. Um, for people who are developing their own regimen, um, is there a too high a dose then that can actually hurt? Like, you know, as, as, as many of people have said, it's like, oh, even water can kill you if you take enough of it. So we do know that there's like a maximum for pretty much everything. But, um, how, you know, how can, how can somebody who's formulating for the first time think about the how much is too much question? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we've seen, I mean, cannabis generally is pretty safe, but you also see cannabis hyperemesis syndrome. So, so some individuals um, just end up, for whatever reason, over time, not being able to tolerate THC very well. Uh, so there is that component that it could change. Uh, what is safe at the beginning may not be safe months or years later. Um, and, and secondly, you know, I, I think it would be a reasonable idea if you're taking um, CBD, you know, uh, in, in hundreds of milligrams types doses, um, it, looking at your kind of standard liver panel, your standard liver enzymes as part of your physical exam, I think could be important because you can always see these elevations or maybe you already have these elevations and then piling CBD on top of that may be, may be a risk. So um, I think it's, it's, um, it would be in everyone's best interest to kind of monitor these things just for peace of mind. Right on, right on, and 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 if and if folks are new to this idea of uh, cannabis hyperemesis, excuse me, cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome, um, uh, we did an episode uh, eighty uh, on it with Dr. Ethan Russo, whose name has come up a lot today, and uh, and and it, yeah, and it, and he's it, a great guy. Yeah, he is, and he's you know he's researched so much, so it's you can't really talk about mm-hmm. you know cannabinopathic medicine without tripping over a bunch of his research, right? So uh, so yeah, so episode exactly. eighty, if if you're new to that, so all right, so hundred. To, to, to bring us to the close here, you know, we've, we've, we have talked about cannabinopathic medicine today in terms of, of longevity and, and not only the length of life, but also the quality of life. And, and, and instead of like, you know, often we think about, you know, cannabinoid medicine as, oh, this is broke. How do I fix the broke thing in me? Right. Um, whereas when we're talking about life, lifelong wellness, it's, it's more about like keeping the system going and rebalancing itself and rejuvenating itself, keeping those systems functioning. Um, to, to bring us home, what do you see as the, um, you know, the novel cannabinoids or the research that you are seeing evolve right now that hold a lot of promise for longevity with uh, cannabis medicine? Oh, well, I think it's a really interesting topic. Uh, I have an acute interest in both uh, botanical drug substances that combine or, or include multiple different cannabinoids to, to whether we want to say entourage or uh, additive, super additive effects or rational polypharmacy. There's a bunch of ways to, to term it, but go to, to treat disease um, in combination by multiple different methods or mechanisms. So I have a, a really big interest in that, and I think that relates directly with age-related disease. So maybe in preventative medicine, um, and maybe 
once you've passed preventative medicine, maybe we can we can stabilize those conditions. And, and the other thing is these what I would consider more novel cannabinoids, things that are understudied, like the the acids, the the cannabinoid acids. So before they're heated, and um, some of these other cannabinoids like CBC and CBE, and uh, a lot of these really understudied uh, cannabinoids that we just don't really know. We know they're active. We just don't know where to use them and how to use them and how much we should use. So uh, I, I think I've got a lot more work ahead of me as well as, <laughs> as many other uh, cannabinoids, so to speak, uh, in, in the space. Right on. Well, um, Hunter, thank you so much for spending your time with us and, and bringing your unique experience that has, you know, um, you know, your ability to do complex research in the lab, but then the other ability to be able to speak about it in, to lay folks like us so that we can better understand, you know, the cannabis medicine that, you know, so many of us rely on. So, so thank you so much for sharing your very valuable time. Oh, well, thanks so much for having me. If you want to learn more about Hunter Land and keep up with his research, uh, there's two great places to do that. The first place to do that is his LinkedIn profile at Hunter Land, and also uh, where he does his primary research, which is at Biopharmaceutical Research Company, and their website is biopharmaresearchco.com. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news, exclusive videos, and giveaways. On the Shaping Fire website, you also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. Be sure to follow on Instagram for all original content not found on the podcast. That's at Shaping Fire and at Shango Los on Instagram. Be sure to check out the Shaping Fire YouTube channel for exclusive interviews, farm tours, and cannabis lectures. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Los.